Welcome to The Indigenous Approach, a podcast where we examine the role of the nation's premier partnered irregular warfare force across the competition continuum, from cooperation to conflict and everything in between. In this episode, we sit down with two of our senior enlisted leaders of the Human Performance and Wellness Program, as well as Command Sergeant Major Ted Munter, to discuss the importance of personal PMCS. Right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Indigenous Approach Podcast. I'm Jake Brayman. I'm going to be your kind of host today, but it's going to be more of a Master Sergeant Chris Copper, who's our First Special Forces Command HPW enlisted leader. Joining us is Master Sergeant Jeff Dardia. He is the third group HPW enlisted leader. And as well, we have Command Sergeant Major Ted Munter, the First Special Forces Command Command Sergeant Major. Cool. Well, I so for those out there, Jeff Dardia um, is uh, come over to talk today with uh, us and y'all about the PMCS, the the maintenance of the commando, the maintenance of the individual. Um, he is, you know, ingrained himself in this over the last ten years or so, and has really been a spearhead in this area for Third Group and for this community. He's been traveling across the uh, enterprise talking about just this maintenance of the individual and using his personal-based uh, experience and knowledge on to, to educate the force. And then, um, you know, CSM Munter, myself, and unfortunately, another guy, a 10-year guy that couldn't make it today, uh, just went through this process, this PMCS process. But the unique thing is at complete different times in our careers, almost separated at a 10-year interval, uh, you know, with the gentleman that couldn't make it, you know, at 10 years, right before he goes back and takes a uh, ODA as a team sergeant, uh, myself at uh, 19, uh, in the process of uh, prepping for transition, I won't call it retirement, and then CSM Munter at 30 years and the the importance and, and highlight the why uh, uh, that was significant and and how to do it better as we go on as a force. You know, I I can tell you about mine, but I, let's let's start with CSM. What led you at year 30 of your career in this organization to go ahead and finally go get some some PMCS some maintenance to your body, mind, soul? The individual sitting across from me, Jeff Dardia. Um, last last summer, he came over uh, to the command and, and gave me a brief on everything that he is doing over in Third Special Forces Group. And he's as he's going through the operator syndrome and a number of other um, common uh, ailments, I'm sitting there going, "Yep, yep, yep, yep." And I think I had nine out of the eleven. Um, symptoms that he was listing. And I realized at that point that I probably had some, some issues that were not just simple wear and tear that were not just things that I potentially would have to live with the rest of my life. And I probably need to start getting looked at in order to start transitioning what I thought was going to be this summer. So I was going to say, it's funny when you talk about these things, right? What you checked off like 90% of those symptoms. So when we survey our transitioning service members, 97% of them say they have 50% or more of the signs and symptoms of operator syndrome, right? And this is something, it shouldn't be a shock. It's part of our operational environment, right? We talked about the fire analogy. If you're in this operational environment, which is your fire, you're going to get burned. But the big thing is we should never go into any environment unprepared that's why we do mission analysis, intelligence preparation, the environment. So the brief I gave CSM Munter was literally an IPE about the health effects of the operational environment, what's out there. So it was in a language he understood that every person in a uniform can comprehend, and it relates to them and their language and culture. So for those who aren't aware of what operator syndrome is, could you briefly describe it? So operator syndrome was a basically a cluster of symptoms that was seen in a, a, psych, a psychologist's office, Dr. Chris Free, seeing over 300 people in the soft uh, community. And what he saw as the most common ailments coming through his clinic. And that would be, you know, traumatic brain injury related things, memory problems, behavior, mood, cognition, sexual dysfunction, anger, addiction, suicidal ideation, uh, all those things, right? Check, 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 fatigue, sleep disturbances. It's, it's a lot of this stuff that we deal with on a daily basis. That's it's part of our, our 
normal routine of waking up and dealing with every day, but it's also something that's expected. It's not, uh, it's not a surprise why these things happen. It's, it's you're, you adapting to your environment in some cases, not adapting well. Was there any correlation with that uh, when that first was discovered with, you know, the, the generation of yesteryear, you know, your Mac V SOG, your, your, your SF guys, your SEALs from Vietnam, you know, your just soldiers from Vietnam that did you know, 12 months pumps, uh, you know, in, in Southeast Asia. So absolutely. You go back to looking at Mac V SOG and looking at what the soldiers dealt with when they came back here, right? Not relating to the culture and the environment of what they'd been working into, even though someone might've been there a year to three or four more years, but the exposures that they were uh, privy to, Agent Orange, blast over pressure, pathogens, infectious disease, stress, acute stress and traumas, all those things affect the body no matter how long you're in that environment. It could be one day or one year or 10 years or 20 years. The biggest thing that we see between us and that generation is the environment we live in at home now being task saturated and you know connected to everything and constant stimuli to the brain from the environment and also the um the way we perceive these things now is completely different than 30 40 50 years ago so for example you went to war you expected that you would deal with the things from war and then they would be left on the battlefield and as a, a person, you would compartmentalize all those things and never talk about them. Like you didn't share them with your family. And that, you know, the stuff we learn in combat and training to compartmentalize all these things, it works great to get you, you know, through the next mission, the next school, the next promotion. But when you come home and you try to go integrate with your family after being gone for 10 to 20, 30 years doing these things, I'd say that's the biggest differentiating factor between Vietnam now is 20 years of prolonged conflict, the impact on the family being away that long, right? Vietnam service members weren't 20 years doing this. Yeah, that's fair. Because pre-9-11 CSM, you know, compared so compared to the op-tempo post-9-11 to pre-9-11 and how that would have, I guess, affect, because you were 10 years, 11 years deep about well, that time. For me, intense special forces group, uh, prior to 9-11, my op-tempo was higher than it, than it was after 9-11. In a lot of ways, uh, 9-11 and the heel-to-toe rotations to Iraq and Afghanistan gave me predictability because I knew when I was going to deploy. I knew when I was going to return. I knew when my PMT cycle was going to be. Um, they weren't these ad hoc kind of missions in J-sets and these one-offs that, that would continually come down uh, the chain. It was probably a give and take. You know, you got the stability, but then you also got the impact of running and gunning downrange for a period of time coming back. And then to your point of the the stimuli, if you will, uh, Colonel Reesberg, he's our command uh, surgeon, and he'll close out with these information drops, you know, and he talks about the concept of uh, being able to have um, clarity, concept of being able to have uh, reflection. So, you know, going back everywhere from a hundred years ago to just 50 years ago, the mode of travel say is train. So if you're going to go to DC or a commander, for instance, is going to go to DC, you know, it, that flight or that train ride, you know, or even further back in that buggy ride had time to reflect on, on what was what to get his thoughts together and then go through whatever it was. Nowadays, and you see it, you're running and gunning. If I send you a text like yesterday, I didn't get anything back until almost eight o'clock for just a Roger. Cause you're busy. And so now there's no time for that reset on top of the operator syndrome. I can add to that. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. So that's perfect. So back in Vietnam and World War II, you were coming back on a boat. You had two weeks to get home to with your buddies to talk and work through some of the things you experienced in combat. Now with the technology and being less than 12 hours from the battlefield to your family, that's a huge shock of everything, right? Like how you're interacting with your family compared to what you were doing in war for the last six to eight months. Um, it's that stimuli, right? You're immersed in that culture and all of a sudden you're ripped out of that environment and thrown in a completely new environment. And speaking for me personally, and a lot of the people I work with, the garrison environment was way more stressful uh, to deal with than in combat. We knew what to expect. There was black and white, but coming back here and having you know, I can't drive the way I used to in Afghanistan or solve problems with a weapon and deal with stress in a black and white <laughs> format, right? It was it was super easy. And then you come back here and you're like, 
man, you know, you're driving and you catch yourself doing things. You're like, well, I probably shouldn't be doing those or, you know, interactions with people when you're like, you're used to telling somebody something and they listen to you and they follow through like, Hey, if you want to live, listen to what I'm telling you, you can't do that with your family. So there's a complete transition that comes out of that, that we get used to doing. And then when we do it with our family members or people in this, in this community, they're like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, I'm not used to being talked to like that, but it's not personal for us. It's if you want to live, do what we tell you to do because we understand a few things. So it's just complete culture shock coming out of that environment so fast. Yeah, bouncing back and forth. I think I think we actually had uh, just one of those fireside chats not, not all that long ago about you know interactions in public and how it's frustrating because you cannot deal with them the same way you would deal with things downrange when it's equally as unintelligent individual you're talking to here for whatever reason you know, that may be to that situation downrange. Well, and to that point, how would these programs help address some of those issues that you guys were finding through 30 years, 20 years, and even for you, 20 years, and then addressing the issue for 10 years? Like, how has this these types of programs helped bring that reality to the soldier who may not know how to properly transition from a wartime mentality to a stateside mentality? That's a CSM So I think... Jeff hit the nail on the head uh, a few minutes ago when, when he brought up uh, the fact that how he presented the information to me, he, he, did, he did it in a way that made sense to me. And so I think that's vitally important. And when I was up at the STAR program, you know, you do have to sit down with, with the behavioral health. Um, and they're, they're not trying to go through this, this real deep um, analysis of you. They ask you point blank. Why are you here and what do you want to get out of our sessions? And what what I told him was, I have problem with road rage um, and I do not like being in, in crowded environments. Um, specifically, because people lack common courtesy in, in both environments. How many times have you been in an airport or a shopping mall or wherever and people stop in the middle of the walkway to check their phone, to have a conversation, just to loiter without any care of those around them. Driving, how many times have you seen people sit in the fast lane and create unsafe environments because cars are trying to zip around them, they're cutting them off, they're putting my my safety and my the safety of my family at risk and very, very frustrating and you can't control it. He, the feedback is the psychologist put it in a context that made sense to me when he said, how long have you served on an ODA? 12 years on an ODA. He said, on an ODA, what is the most important thing? The team. The team comes before everything else. He said, the average American doesn't think that way. You have grown up with a mentality where you are thinking about everybody else before you. And the average American doesn't think that way. You expect them, because of your mentality, to move out of the way when they're clogging up traffic on the highway or they're clogging up pedestrian traffic. And that's just not how they're wired. So that suddenly made perfect sense to me. And he wanted to talk about um, a treatment plan and, and how we go forward. And I said, I'm good. He, what do you mean you're good? I said, I, you put it in a context that you defined the problem and it makes sense. So all I have to do is be cognizant when I'm in these environments and build a new habit of let it go. It's not their fault. They, they don't think the way that I do, and I can't hold that against them. I'm so glad you said this, right? So this goes back to understand. And one of the things we teach in our program, the Force Health Pro, that's the first soft imperative, understand the operational environment. And think of the operations process. It's understand and visualize, because when you understand what the problem is, you can work at solving it. So, for example, I'm going to use this as a, a vignette. For you with the traffic and the road rage, how many times did you go to Iraq? 
twice to Iraq and uh, four times to Afghanistan. Okay. What happens when people bottleneck in traffic? What's your biggest threat? It's, it's an IED or, ID or an ambush, yeah. right? So you knew back then, I'm guarantee you, without dragging up old memories, that there were incidences where people got blown up or shot or killed because of those types of things happening in the roadway. And that's called projection. So a lot of people don't understand about trauma is that when you're reacting this way in your environment and you don't know why you're doing it, and it, it seems so trivial, is because you don't understand that that reaction in combat was tied to you to an incident or multiple incidences where your sympathetic nervous system was in overdrive because of the threats in your environment. So when you come home and those triggers and mediators are there in your environment, you're going to be reminded of how you felt in combat. And that's ex it kept you alive. That's why you're still here. But a lot of people don't realize that those incidences overseas carry on for the rest of your life. It's self-preservation. And that's something we work through with our trauma and resilience workshops in our transition program. And also part of the education with people coming into our community. You shouldn't have to figure this out after 30 years, right? Think of how many days, nights, and weeks, and I years. I think you just called me dumb. <laughs> no, <laughs> it, it's not you guys. It's us as an institution. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have to worry about this on our way out the door. We should be teaching people that these things are going to happen. It's a normal reaction and a part of our environment that we condition ourselves into. We override our nervous system every time we run into gunfire and put ourselves in harm's way. That is not a natural thing to do. Most people wouldn't sign up to go run into gunfire and ambushes and IEDs and drive over IEDs every day. But we do it because that's what we do and what we're expected to do. And we compartmentalize those fears and anxieties and concerns to accomplish the mission. So for your case right here, you're probably the light bulb just probably went off, right? To why are you thinking that you feel that way when you're in traffic? A absolutely. And it really explained, you know, some significant frustrations that I had um, with regard to anger. I knew it was me that, that had the problem um, because multiple people had told me, you know, wife about every time we, we left the house. <laughs> as per SOP. Um, pretty much as per SOP. It, it got to the point where she told me point blank, you're going to get me killed. Um, my frustration was I couldn't fix it. I can fix anything. I, I absolutely believe I can do anything that I want to do. It may take a couple times. But eventually I will succeed, but I couldn't fix this. And it's because I could not take the simple step of putting it into a context that made sense to me. And it simply took somebody else that understood the soft community and the mentality and the things that we go through to go, here's the problem. Yeah. And I'm glad, again, you just hammered another point home. In our education campaign, it's not only educating the service member, but those who take care of service members. So we're educating medical providers about the soft operational environment. And that's part of our what's called SOFAM uh, at third group is soft familiarization for incoming providers. And that's something I hope we can expand on when I come up here. But the first pro pro uh, part of solving any problems, understanding. And if we have service members understand the operational environment and providers, mutual trust, cooperation, feedback. And that way we can provide better services to our community. Well, and that's something I've noticed in the last year here is <clears throat> it's a, there's a lack of, you just don't know what you don't know. And there's a lot of experience in our providers. Um, however, unless they were a operator, whatever, you know, yeah. pick one, pick one of the soft branches, but unless they came from this community. You just don't know what you don't know. And going back to, you know, talking about the roadway, if I want to, I want to clarify something with that, you know, it's the, it's not so much the lack of, or the uh, thought of getting shot. You know, that person's driving left lane and, you know, you're concerned there's an IED that's going to explode. It's the danger that that's causing with the traffic backup. that's triggering that same fight or flight mentality of the concept of downrange when, the threat wasn't a traffic jam or a car accident. It was a IED. So it's not that you're concerned on the you know I-85 in Georgia that you're going to get an IED or VBID, but it's the same threat of that pile up at 80 miles an hour that pisses you off. Right. It's the, it's the triggers, the conditions in the environment that meet it. So 
when you're experiencing trauma, your brain records everything, sight, smell, touch, sound, all those things are up there. And when those conditions are met in your environment, it triggers that sympathetic response to say, hey, pay attention to what's going on because we're back in the situation again. It's They call it the autonomic nervous system because you don't think you. it's an automatic response. So you don't have any say in that. Your nervous system is going to tell you. And whether you pick up on it or not, you're going to feel it. You might not be aware why you feel that way. It's hardwired into you. It's chemically embedded in your brain to keep you alive. It's self-preservation. And there's, it's not a disease. That's what you want to happen. It becomes the disorder in PTSD when it affects your relationships, your ability to go in public, travel, and go on vacations. That's when it becomes a disorder. But once you understand why you feel that way, you can literally work through it. And it's like a weight lifted off your shoulders, like you said. And that's where a lot of our guys, I wish I had this information 20 years ago. So that's why we're putting this information in the beginning of your career. So you identify it when those signs and symptoms and indicators, those check engine lights come on, you know exactly what it is and how to work through it and get help for it. And you know where your enablers are to do it. Yeah, with just the individual himself, but also the also the the clinicians and everybody the incoming personnel, because once again, you don't know what you don't know, right. and all everybody's experience brings something to this 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 line of effort, which is the overall full spectrum care. Yep, that's pretty cool. And going beyond just the normal, you know, mental awareness and sort of nor- nervous system um, check engine lights. There's also the physical aspects where, yeah, we get treated, but we want to get back into the fight as quick as we can. So sometimes we neglect things that our body is telling us, "Hey, no, you should probably relax a bit, but you don't want to be that guy who makes the team inoperable." Um, how do these programs address that type of situation? I can tackle that one pretty easy. So I want you to think of yourself as a weapon system or a car, right? Why do we have regular maintenance with a vehicle? It's because you want to preserve performance and right extend service life. You want to be able to operate it longer and have this thing be worth something when you go to trade it in, right? But the only thing about us as humans, we can't trade it in. This is the only one we got. We can't treat it like a rental car. So if you can get people to understand that concept, to take ownership of health and action and service their car and keep it on the track and performing optimally and lasting longer, it's easier to make better decisions, well-informed decisions. And to your point of the maintenance, you shouldn't learn how to maintain a weapon after you've taken it to combat six times, right? So you have to understand, go back to basic rifle marksmanship or safety in basic training before they put you out in the firing line. They teach you about the M4. They teach you the components, how it functions, how it operates, what a malfunction looks like and how to correct a malfunction, right? And that's field level individual type maintenance. When it malfunctions and you cannot fix it, you raise your hand and someone tries to help you, right? A mentor, a provider in your HPW program, someone. And if they cannot fix that, that's when this thing goes to level 20 armor level maintenance, right? That I need more help than I can do myself or someone else helping me with. That's why we're trying to take our HPW program and put it in army language, army sustainment, two level maintenance, field level, you know, maintenance done by the individual in the field, and then level 20 done by a professional at a higher echelon of care outside of the field at the unit level. That's our medical programs. That's our intrepid spirits. That's our stars, our preps and our NICOs. I think everybody in uniform can understand that concept of why it's relevant Readiness, right? The cornerstone of readiness is sustainment. That's why we do maintenance. That's why we do risk management. All those things is to prevent loss, damage, and injury and keep readiness at optimal levels. Take that to the individual. I want to stay ready. I want to stay in the fight and be able to deploy. And I don't want to get cancer. I don't want to get heart disease. I don't want to kill myself or get divorced. Apply all those principles and frameworks we do as Green Berets, and it applies to health and wellness. And that's what HPW should be is sustainment for the human weapon system. It's a little counterintuitive, don't you think, um, with some of the mentality out there. Uh, and I'll point yeah. it at me. Um, no, you're right. I'm, so I'm, I was going I'm, with this I'm the, culture I'm, stigma. I'm, I'm an example of what not to do in a, in a lot of cases. But in an effort to try to stay in the fight and stay operational as long as you can, you don't want to go seek help. Um, to fix the things that you need to, to get fixed, you just power through it um, rather than going in early, getting fixed. Well, maybe a quick, you know, one week, two week rehab piece 
and then you're 100% back in the fight, you're slowly degrading and potentially you're taking yourself out far earlier than you would have had you done that routine kind of maintenance. Right. I go back to Sarah, right? Like our arms repair when we come back from deployment. You have to certify your weapons through for maintenance before you can put them back out online. So part of Red Cycle now at our group is we have the comprehensive operator readiness assessment. So we have time to do the maintenance and we're not giving you an option. You're coming through, you're going to get an assessment. It's up to you to follow through to get your care. We're not going to pull you offline unless we identified something that is no crap, a red line event like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, or something to that extent where you have, like, if you don't fix it, you're going to die, right? So it's not something I'm going to use to send you to the three shop or to SWIC. It's literally there for your, your feedback to figure out where you stand amongst yourself as a baseline, amongst your peers and what you need to be performing to keep that uh, weapon in the fight, keep yourself in the fight. And if you choose not to do that, then it's the consequences with you. You can't blame your provider or your unit for not taking care of you. So it's putting the individual responsibility on there, providing the feedback and the operator assessment to the operator so they can see where they where they are compared to their peers and themselves. So, right. And it's, I think it's the education, you know, from, from what I know of it, it's the education piece because it's not just putting it back on the guy and saying, Hey, you know, if you use this, you're going to be great. And if you don't, you know, well, you rig it, you ride it. The, you know, it, there's the education piece to it to see a sense point where it was given to them in a manner that they could understand, you know, I keep running red, I go boom. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, I think, where we'll make our money. And that's, I think, you know, going to, you know, talking about the outcomes of our program, HBW, or the programs that are there, is in-state that monitoring system and that output system for the guys uh, and the fo- or the force to understand where they are at year one, initial takeoff, to year five to 10 to 15 to 20, 30 and, you know, however long to be able to have that baseline and then that end state and everything in between to then meet the goals for the why. Because going back to the STAR program, like I think you said yours was because you talked to Jeff and he connected some dots on some things that sat in your mind that you knew you needed to get to under control, correct, CSM? Yes. One, under control and two, um, to be assessed. Because there is a life outside of, of wariness. And no matter how long you spend uh, in this profession, and don't get me wrong, I love what I do every single day. But at the end of the day, it's still a job. And your family is a lifetime. And so the quality of life with your family has to be up, up front and, and important. Um, having a family not have ruined it because you're angry because you're in pain um, or you're not performing to the level that you want to perform or you're having road rage incidents or you don't like going out Christmas shopping, um, going on vacations. All of that isolates you from your family. And to some degree, all of that was happening. Yeah. Speaking of that, I was going to go back to that. That was one thing that I always got beat up on by family, right? We talked about not wanting to go on vacations or I used to get, why can't we go anywhere? Just me and you. Why does it always have to be you and someone from your team or something else? Right. We talked about that team wolf pack mentality. When you're with your family, you're one man in the room by yourself. It's exhausting because you know the evils of the world. You've seen it all. And then when you pull your family somewhere, you can't relax because you're in the room by yourself and you're sizing up everything in your environment to protect your family. So for me, it, it was work trying to take my family anywhere because I felt like I was flapping in the room by myself. But when you're with your teammates, there's no, no worry in the world. You know, someone's got your back and you know, you know, you can handle business. So that, I'm glad you said that. And, and you, I got tired of, of getting beat up. Um, yeah. Why can't you ever walk with me yep. and, and the kids? Why do you have to walk behind us? Yep. Um, because if I'm walking with you, I can't see what is potentially targeting you. Exactly. From, from here, I have a much Better perspective of what's going on, but with the exception of what is coming directly behind me. And and that's something I've tried to educate my family about because they take it personally. And it's just like, you know, you, you walk them through all those things are like, Hey, what, you know, when you're going these places, why do you always have, 
to be so like robot, you know, like, hey, just why are you telling me to do these things, not explaining to me? Because you're on patrol, right? You're on number one man on patrol. You're a point man by yourself with your family. And it, I'm like, if you don't listen to me, bad things are going to happen to you. You're used to your teammates yeah. listening. When you tell them something, they do it. But your family's like, they're your dad or husband to them. You're not the E8 team sergeant. Like, you're just the regular guy. They don't understand what you do for work. So that's that mutual understanding that we always have to talk about. It's That's why I want to educate the families when they, we go into this environment, when we come into SOF, that they have expectation management as well to understand the changes that their husband or wife is going to go through uh, when they come into this career field and why it's happening, the why I'll go back to the why again, but education drives all of this. And if you have the education up front, when these check engine lights and all these things are happening, it's not a shock. We always talk about the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. That applies to everything. The more prepared you are and educated up front you are when these things happening, it's not a shock and you have a plan. So you, you're not just figuring out on the go. You actually know what to do. It goes, it's battle drill one alpha, right? When you react to contact, you shouldn't have to think what to do. It's drilled into you to react muscle memory. I am going to react with fire, fire dom, you know, fire superiority, gain security and do all those things we do. It's the same thing with coming in this environment in soft. We know what to expect. We know what we're going to put you through when these things start happening. We have a plan. That's the care pathway SOP. That I've been trying to push is it you should go right back to your training. You revert back to your training. And coming into this career, revert back to what we taught you at the very beginning of this is to be expected. And this is not, you know, this is not a, a shock or a surprise when these things happening. And everyone I've educated going through these programs, I have the feedback forms in front of me. I wish I had this when I was going through the Q course or at least onboarding to the unit. I wish I had this information. It will be interesting to see because I do think back to, you know, PFC copper and rip or, you know, going through the Q course. I, I, you know, I, I don't know what I would have been like. I don't know, but I also think we're going through a generational and cultural shift, you know, too. Um, you know, so I think that it's a, I think it's a good, I think it's a plan. And, you know, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Uh, you know, I don't, I can't go back in time and know what I would have thought. I mean, you know, I think, you're fortunate that you know your wife was uh, enough to that was on you on your ass to to do that. My one just rolls her eyes at me. I think she thinks I'm full of crap. Um, but you know uh, she's coming around. But that's the thing. I, I can't go back and remember how I would have received this information at as a young man. I can remember. I can tell you, ignorance is bliss, right? When I went through buds at 20 years old, like I'm probably glad I didn't know anything about it because when it happened. You know, you would have gone into that already doubting yourself or well, I don't know what's coming to me. But after you get done training, it's like think of SEER school, the RTL, right? Resistance training lab. There's a reason you get debriefed coming out of that program, because the things you go through being helpless, hopeless, powers to change the outcome of the situation, right? Trauma. And for people who are conditioned from that, or I grew up the youngest in a family, I got blamed for everything. So every day was like serious school, but I was conditioned from that from a young age. But some people that could have been shocking, right? And that could have become reality for them, especially if they were sexually abused, physically abused, right? Going into that program and then triggering, talking about those things from your environment and past coming, flashing up in front of you. So that's why the, a psychologist, psychiatrist goes and sits down and interviews you before we cut you loose after that school. But after we stress inoculate, put you through our pipelines, we should explain what we did to you. That way, when you go to your team and go forward, you're better prepared. At the beginning, before going that, probably not a good idea, right? Mm -hmm. But after going through all that stress inoculation, you should know at a minimum how it physiologically affects you, sexual performance, reproductive, and then psychologically, hypervigilance, you know, not being able to relax and being stuck in work mode. If you come out of that being aware of those, you can manage it way easier than trying to figure it out after you're in behavioral health, after your second marriage, your DUI, and your divorce. Yeah, I would concur. And keep in mind, when, when Jeff talks about it's an education issue, you know, your comment of, I don't know how I would have received the information or, or what I would be had I had the information. It's not singular. The education is not simply to the individual. It's education to drive changing culture to where we're open and honest to say, Hey, I need to go see the doc. You know, I, I've screwed up my knee. It's okay. You're not getting pressure or feel like you're getting pressure because of the culture 
to not seek help to stay on the team. I'm glad you just brought that up. So surveys, right? So I've been surveying for three years, people going through our programs for Meta, Third Group, and then through SWIC Paradigm. So second battalion, looking at people who've got five to 10 years in as instructors. So at Third Group, we've been hammering the awareness part down, understanding all the things going on in our, our culture. At a, we had 83 people go through the last transition seminar, majority of them uh, from Third Group and First SFC. 65% of the people in that audience had been seeing behavior health already, which is huge, right? That, that's a good news story. Good news story, right? Out of those 60, well, the, out of that entire 83, over 59% had thought of suicide. Now that's not good news. So, but the fact that they admitted to that on a survey, it was de-identified and anonymous, but the numbers between how many had thought about suicide and how many were seeking behavior health care we're pretty close, which means we had a little bit of a gap in there for people who did not seek help. But comparing that to the civilian population everywhere else, that's a massive success. When I looked at the paradigm cadre going through, we had uh, only 17% of the population that had sought help for behavioral health, but the same number had contemplated suicide, 50%. That's a huge gap. So that's going back to the education here at Fort Bragg is really good. It's robust. But some of the outlying groups and institutions are not on the same page. goes back to why we need to push that education and standardize it. But at our group, the suicides are going down where a lot of other people are going up. So that's a good indicator of why we talk about these things. But most importantly, how do we connect people to care and how do we insulate them and teach their peers how to have that conversation to get them in and get them help? And we've been really successful with that. It's, that's a shout out to our behavior health and our leadership at Third Group and our community for taking care of each other. Well, that's a topic that goes right into stigma. And so we've got, you know, Citizen Mata right here. And we can talk stigma because you've been there, you've done that, you've been everything, everywhere from a you know, team guy all the way to the first SFC CSM. So talking stigma of behavior health and getting help. <clears throat> how, how have you seen that shift over the years? How, what's your thoughts on that? I would say we are starting to, to see a shift. Um, and, and that shift has really begun maybe in the last year. Um, up to that point, I, I would say it, it was very, very incremental um, because we never really addressed the culture piece. Um, and when we put the heavy emphasis on culture and put the emphasis on leaders building a culture where the teammates and their subordinates feel like it's an environment where they are safe to say, I need to go, need to go get some help. I, I need a PMCS of my brain. Something's not quite working, but before I have a catastrophic failure, I need to go get it checked out. It may be as simple as put something in perspective for you and you go, wow, that makes perfect sense. And you work on the problem. It could be a little more difficult. Like in my case is you knew there's a problem. You knew something wasn't right, but you couldn't figure out on your own how to fix it. If that makes sense. So that's the mental fitness. So something we teach in our program is resilience, right? The ability to get knocked down, to get back up and to move forward. That's the most important part is to move forward, to build off that, uh, that experience and physiological resilience or, you know, and mental resilience, right? Think of going to the gym. When you put a load on your muscles, what happens? They break down then they build back stronger. So the next time they get that load on it, it's easier. Your weights don't get lighter. You get stronger. You're becoming more resilient. Your brain is the same exact way. You put a load on it. It recovers from it. It bounces back positive experience or just an experience. Next time it happens to you, you're resilient. You can handle it. Stress inoculation, the whole more you sweat in peace. If you don't give your brain the same attention you do your muscles in the gym, you're going to have the same types of problem. If you get to the point where your muscles can't handle the load because they're not prepared, what happens to your muscles? Things break, right? The connective tissue breaks. Mentally, your connective tissue breaks when you're taking on more stress than you can handle and bounce back from. And that's when you snap and get the disorders, right? And that's something we, we try to 
put out there to get people to understand that you have to do the maintenance in the brain uh, just as much as the body. Stress and trauma were the things that because I was a green beret and went through all these pipelines that I thought I had nailed. Uh, I'm awesome at stress. I do really good on it. But when you compartmentalize so much stress, the first thing that's going to break is your body because your mind can go way past what your body can handle. And we compartmentalize. Think of that big, huge rucksack that we throw everything in. Next thing you know, it's crushing you. The tick is crushing you. And then you have the heart problems, the blood pressure problems, the cholesterol issues, the insulin resistance, sleep, sexual dysfunction. That's your body not becoming resilient. It's becoming fragile. And sorry, I'm bumping the table here, but you're not bouncing back like you used to, right? You see it as the older you get in uniform, like, man, I don't bounce back like I used to. Think of that resilience. And it's that simple. And when your body can actually bounce back and repair and recover, then you're adapted for your environment. But what we do is we compartmentalize everything and our mind drives our body past what it can handle. And when you can get people to understand how to balance that work-life balance, then they can remain resilient and effective on the battlefield, not miss time away from work, but they're doing the maintenance. And a lot of our guys in our community, I call it the ATFs, all the fun things, all things fun, right? Alcohol, tobacco, and the Fs, the fornicating, the firearms, and all those things. Those are all your carcinogens, You forgot right? the wheels. Yeah. Yep. It, but that's exactly right. So the fun things, all the fun things. But what do we do to to compensate for stressors in our life? What do we like to use? One of those fun things. Bingo, right? And what <laughs> happens when we lose the ability to do those fun things because of injury or illness? We get sad. We get depressed. We lose our identity. We lose our purpose. Angry. Angry, right? And then you're like, where the hell is this coming from? Because we used all the ATFs to overcome our problems. But in reality, those ATFs are like the leading causes of cancers. They're leading causes of metabolic dysfunction in the body, oxidative stress, alcohol, group one human carcinogen, tobacco products, group one human carcinogen, STDs, some of the leading causes like HPV of throat, oral, rectal cancers. So all the fun things, right? I, I hate to be the fun now, place, but- Now you're just being one of those negative Nancy's see, over Chris here. Chris is like, stop me. I feel okay. like you're personally attacking yeah, me. Right? You're looking but at me as you're saying all this. I'm looking at all of us. <laughs> do, you feel, do you feel guilty? <laughs> Absolutely. So think about it, right? So we're all guilty, right? You, you wouldn't be where you were because we all, we got assessed and selected because of our ability to, to compartmentalize stress and make great decisions, right? We're stress inoculated. Outlaw that, country's about, by it's, the way. It's, it's our environment, right? We, we probably didn't grow up in the best households or whatever it was, but we can endure. We're resilient creatures. They didn't assess us by how many pull-ups we could do and what our one-minute mile time was. It was, can you be in stressful environments by yourself or in a team, make solid decisions and keep doing it over and over again and be reliable? And that's what we proved going through our assessment programs. And that's why we got selected. But if you continue that mentality for the rest of your life and compartmentalize everything and don't do the maintenance and keep driving yourself in the ground, you're not going to last that long. Think of that rental car, right? I grew up in New England and you don't want to buy a used car from New England because of why? Salt. Salt. And what does salt do to your vehicle? Rust. Rust. And what is rust? It's oxidative stress, right? So your body's ability to repair and maintain and keep status, right? Homeostasis balance. When you're in an environment full of all those things like salt and rust, which are those bad decisions we make and the toxins we breathe in, it rusts your car. So if you want to be the rental car that rusts out in five years and is worthless to anybody for a trade-in value, you need to learn how to optimize your environment to repair and wash your car, right? Do the maintenance to get that oxidative stress out of you. Do the antioxidant repair stuff, which is controlling your controllables, nutrition, sleep, relaxation, finances, relationships. It's all the the pillars of wellness, right? The All the things we keep preaching, but- The good habits. The good habits. The good habits. But that you can do it at an individual level. You don't need a PhD or an MD to do those things. It's education. But preserve that car. You know, treat it good. You know, optimize performance. Put a supercharger on it. Take it to the racetrack, but make sure you do the maintenance. I'll circle back with all these things we've been talking today. That comes to individual decision making, and that's why we have MDMP. That's why we have composite risk management. All those processes and principles to facilitate better decision making, and that's an individual responsibility based off having the information of your environment and your lifestyle. And we can teach that here. Expectation management yeah. too. It's also 
doing something that is completely foreign to us, <laughs> it, and that is putting us first at times. Yep. Even just putting us in terms, right? Like we're so worried about everything else in our life, taking care of our job, you know, expectations, our family expectations. We're the last people to get maintained. We're always trying to solve other people's problems. And in reality, you know, we're causing ourselves a big one and work-life balance. That's it. And I'm guilty of it. I still do it now, spreading myself thin, traveling all over, talking to people. But we all know the importance of why we do what we do. And that comes to purpose and identity. That's, again, why we're all in the same room together, because that's what we want to do is help people. But it's like being in the airplane, put your own oxygen mask on first before you can help anybody else and getting people to follow through that. And like I said, I'm guilty myself. I still catch myself doing it. But if we put it in our programs and it's part of Red Cycle and it's, it's a, the, our serrate for us, then it's expected. It's part of the culture. It's normalized. And people will start following through. This new generation of kids, way more switched on than we were with self-care and awareness. Absolutely. And, and looking at it that from that perspective and everything, Laura, you put yourself first. And since um, both uh, Chris and Sergeant Major Munter went through these programs, what were the outcomes that you guys found? What outcomes came from actually participating in these type of um, programs that made you start realizing that you needed to put yourself first? Well, in all fairness, for UCSM, I mean, this is honest opinion. Like uh, from just people within First SFC, when you got back, people said you looked younger and just uh, had energy and just was almost a complete different different vibe, if you will, from your return. Not a bad way, but a good. Because I was locked in for six weeks um, with no booze. I I went through a a sleep recalibration um, where you go through um, sleep deprivation. I was allowed to sleep from, from 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. to reset the drive to want to go to sleep and then stay asleep. The average time uh, they told me is about two weeks before somebody is reset. It took me almost five because I had been doing this for so long. When I got back to CCWO, Chief Gronowski turned to me and goes, how do, how do I go? Um, you look younger. Uh, you're sitting upright. You're standing upright. Your shoulders are back. Your, your head is up. Uh, all of those are, are outcomes of six weeks of dedicated physical therapy every single day, kinesotherapy, cognitive therapy, um, occupational therapy, in an environment that's that's stress free, um, I I am so thankful to Major General Angle and and all of the the command teams at the group because they they really did a good job in letting me be. Although I had my comm suite up there, I wasn't getting a, a ton um, essay type stuff and things that only I could do, but they did a very good job in letting me focus on me. It was tough the <laughs> first couple weeks of focusing on me. In fact, even when I was was given a, a course date, I almost turned it down. Um, but General Engel was in the car. He was like, you're going. And I said, oh, that's, you know, it's like 30 days, maybe even longer. He said, you're going. Because one, you need to go. Um, there's life after the military. And two, think about what it says to the rest of the command when you take time to take care of yourself. And I couldn't argue with the common sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely glad you said that. Yeah. I mean, if a CSM at First Special Forces Command can afford to get away from work to go preserve himself and his family to better serve the entire regiment, then I think the E6 and E7 on a team can do that, right? Absolutely. Shit didn't burn down. Bingo. Work I left remarkably was still there waiting for me to, to come back. Um, nobody was screaming and yelling. I mean, they think, functioned without me. Think about us. And in, in our mind, we think we're irreplaceable. Like, oh my God, if I leave the team, the, the team's not going to go on. We all know that's not true. And we literally like put redundancy on ODAs with two MOSs for that exact purpose. So we're not centralized. 
So it's a testament to our ability to not only adapt to losing somebody on a team, but it, it goes to show that the machine moves forward. We're not going to stop that machine. And if if a CSM at First Special Forces Command can do this, then the rest of our guys should have the ability and the confidence to know that they can walk away for a little bit to take care of themselves, to better serve their unit and stay in uniform longer and provide better service to the regiment. Well, the other side of the reason of, of it being hard to go is not so much that you think that the, uh, you know, the, the house is going to burn down when you're gone, but you, you want to shoulder your share of the load. You know, you don't want to be the guy that steps away and has somebody else carry your ruck. And so that's, I think, that's, I think, probably the majority of the reason that people don't. I, that's personally why I never. So think of the ruck. Remember that. I used the rucksack analogy? What happens when that ruck gets too big to carry? Because it crushes you down. And then are you going to be able to carry that load going forward? Right. Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, that's the logic of it, but yeah. the, the thought process of it. I mean, I thought, to be honest, I thought I was good. You know, I thought because I've had this opportunity working within this realm this last year, you know, I thought, I've, you know what, I've, I've made some changes. I, I drink less. I, you know, I'm, I've, I've talked with, uh, you know, my people within behavior health and I'm good. I'm good. And so I mainly was trying to go just to make sure that I got diagnosed. I got looked at. I got that full, you know, head to toe checkup just to make sure there wasn't any cancer, you know, growing in regions. I didn't need it to be growing in and just what have you. And I realized that I was, I was pretty far off and I got a lot of good stuff. I sleep better now. I'm actually using my CPAP. Um, I get quality sleep where there's, you know, uh, quantity that's, that's still to be determined, but I wake up refreshed and I feel better. You know, I, I learned some ways to, you know, back to your point. You about, got the hair going on too now. That is, I think it was something that kind of started Rule to number grow one. in yeah, there. Right <laughs> Rule number one. New product. In fairness, I'm trying to give Chief Kronowski a run for his money. You, you look like he's twin. <laughs> he was my warrant officer for a long time. So I'm good sorry. luck. <laughs> good luck with trying to keep up with him and his hair product. I feel like I'm, I feel like he won't admit it, but I feel like I'm doing pretty good. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I learned a lot of ways to just uh, get some sleep, one, relax. Uh, and the main thing, honestly, is the pain in my shoulders. You talked about your shoulders. I don't think I had the same issues that you had, but um, they, mine were pretty minor with some cartilage issues in both. But had I not taken the time to get that five-week uh, physical therapy consistently, I would have already had at least one so shoulder surgery and been getting prepared for the next one. Still may do that, but... I've found ways to manage it. We can actually now go surf and I won't be complaining the whole time, uh, you know, and making excuses. You don't have the rusty car. And that's exactly, exactly going back to the whole HPW two level maintenance thing is that understanding why you have rust, where the rust is coming from, right? The oxidization in your body, but knowing how to make better decisions to minimize that and give your body the opportunity to repair itself. And, and that's invaluable. We're force multipliers. Now, both of you guys, just came out of programs. Not only did you learn about yourself, but you can help other people based off what you learned. And that's that's the most important part is being able to spread that knowledge to empower other people to do the same. That's we're correcting our own problems. We're getting ahead of it, not reacting to it. And that's what separates us from every other branch in the military and special operations is our ability to plan and conduct operations. And that goes back to having all the information up front, understanding the operational environment and knowing what to expect when you get in that environment. Like my job as an 18 Fox was force protection. And if I did a good job as an 18 Fox, the guys walking off the back of that aircraft knew exactly what they were getting into because they knew the operation and mission variables. And that's exactly what we need to do with HPW to prepare our guys coming into this career field and gals uh, is to understand the operational environment, the decisions that you make, how it's going to affect your ability to operate for a long time in this environment. He got the opportunity to go to his program. I got the opportunity to go to mine. However, at you know, for those of you guys at the groups, there is an HPW at each group, you know, and and, and if you're in another RSOF uh, organization and listen to this, you have those components to start there. So don't think that, okay, now I just got to, I've got to get to one of these programs right this second. You've got people within your human performance and wellness that can start that process whether it be your Thor, your cognitive, your behavior, health, your spiritual, your family programs, 
it just takes some resourcing, some uh, transparency with either your 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 peers, your subordinates, or your superiors to find out the information. Um, we call that initiative. There you go. Some of that initiative. Yeah, and then most importantly, it's the people you have in those positions. It's not a position. It's the, the right type of person to be there to have those conversations and to facilitate connecting people. You're a node as an HPW leader, right? You should be the trusted agent at that unit that you know Anyone, you have an open door policy. Anyone can come and talk to you uh, ahead of time. And then you show them that pathway, that SOP of if you redline or you're identified or self-identify, we know exactly where to get you and when to get you there and make it as timely as possible. Time, blood, and money is what we want to save. That's what commanders want to see. And that's what we can provide in HPW. Exactly. And so with that initiative, getting there, the transparency of being honest about what is wrong, because you may not know that there's something wrong with you, with the way that you're sleeping or your habits or what have you. Ask your spouse. But be transparent to yourself. Be honest with yourself and who you're talking with so those professionals can help you. And have some expectation management because if you really do need some help, you know, you may have to move away or move off or move to the side for a little bit. But that's, you know, if, if that's what's warranted. So just I think some understanding and look at it. As I guess, as I think Jeff's a gearhead, as a car, look at your body like a car. Yeah. I mean, go back to that seeking help part. The majority of people that chose not to seek help that we've surveyed, we obviously know the stigma, right? That's still there. Um, clearance, fear of getting benched, basically pulled off a team, missing an appointment and trust, right? Having that. And as a leader, you should be striving to instill that trust and confidence in your subordinates that they can approach you, right? I think it was Colin Powell that used to say, if people stop bringing you their problems, you've lost the ability to lead. I think it was something along those lines. It's pretty close to yeah. what he said. Yes. So that that stuck with me uh, you know, throughout my whole career. If people are coming to you, which my phone is constantly blowing up and my office is full, that's a good indicator I've built some rapport and trust with the people in the unit. And I had a phone call this morning with guys like, hey, you saved my life. And I just wanted to thank you. He called me this morning to thank me and said, uh, you know, I'm glad I went to Meta twice and it, it, like the second time really hit home, but he's changed his life, turned his life around just because of an interaction. You know what I'm saying? So, That's yeah. Good though, right so there. that was this morning and like waking up to that was pretty fulfilling. But, you know, we we need this everywhere, not just at third group and just at HPW. But that's what I hope to bring to the table when I come up here is standardizing that level of care and that expectation management for people that. It's like, think of the golden hour in a medevac. We all go into combat knowing that, hey, I can get to the operating table in less than an hour. I'm going to live. My chances of survivability are up over 90% if I can get to an operating table in under an hour. So that's why we have that. Uh, having a care pathway here at all the, you know, in the entire regiment, when I say here, that knowing people, that's that golden hour. That if I redline or if I'm having those bad thoughts in my head, that within an hour, I'm going to be with somebody talking or sitting with that's going to guide me through this entire process. That's what we should strive to do. And I'd like for you, Sergeant Major, to give some closing comments to kind of round out this whole discussion. Don't be me. Um, I, <laughs> Don't I, I, be I me. I think is, is, is the general theme um, uh, of this podcast. I, I waited way too long uh, before I, I sought the help. Um, I could have lived a, a, a much different life uh, for the last at least 10 years than I did. It, had I taken a little more of the initiative and sought the treatment in a timely manner. And, and I say that because for the last six or eight years, I, I've had really, really bad neck pain it, and I was told it's it's due to the spinal fusion and the spacers, and that I would need another fusion um, in order to to alleviate it. And I go to the STAR program, and during the assessment with the physical therapist, he looks, he goes, I see that you recently had surgery on your left shoulder. Uh, yep, I had it in, in October. How long were you in pain before 
you had surgery. I said I, I had cortisone shots for, for about six years. Um, why, why'd you have surgery? Because they told me I couldn't have shots anymore. Okay, so as a result, here's what's, what has happened. You've dropped your shoulder to alleviate the pain and then rotated it forward. Doing so has pulled your chest forward and shortened your pectoral muscles, which is now pulling your neck forward and to the left, causing your back pain. You've shortened your trachea. You no longer breathe correctly. You don't use your diaphragm. You're using only your chest. You don't hold your tongue correctly anymore, which is likely increasing the severity of your sleep apnea. So we're going to go through the next five weeks of doing deep tissue dry needling and stretching so I can pull that pectoral muscle out, pull your shoulders back to where they need to be, start to work on bringing your neck in proper alignment. We'll work on breathing exercises and how to hold your tongue correctly and eat correctly. What do you mean I don't eat correctly? How is that possible? (laughs) But into the fifth week, no back pain. And I've generally been free of back pain since the the middle of February. All because of shoulder. Five years ago, seven years ago, how much of that could I have changed? How much did that detract over quality family time? Don't be me. This has been The Indigenous Approach. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow us on social media. And if you have suggestions for topics or guests, send us a message. Thank you for listening.